If you've been with us either online or in person, we have been going through uh, this teaching series called Being the People of God. And what we're really trying to do is reframe our thinking about what the church is. Uh, You've heard us say this a million times, but it's important for us to keep saying that, and that is that the church is not a building, nor is the church a program. The church is, in fact, a people who have been called by God. Now, buildings can help in that, and programs can be part of that, and there are certain things that we are called to do as God's people, but our primary identity is as these people. And so we started off really focusing in on that identity reality, that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation in God's special possession. And we learned that we ought to really find our life's rhythms and ambitions out of that identity, not out of anything else. And in the second week, we uh, rightly put Jesus front and center because Jesus is the head of the church. And as we learned, not just the head of the church, but everything has been put under his feet by God. Uh, This is because of the glory of Jesus. This is because of the works of Jesus. And this is also because of the will of the Father. He rightly deserves this. And yet God in his grace has also given the church to him and he leads us so well you might remember we said if Jesus is the head that means a couple of other things are also true right that is that the human government is not the head of the church that is that human religious leaders are not the head of the church that is that local church leaders are not the head of the church and that is also that you are not the head of the church Jesus is and we make much of him when we gather and we listen and we follow him. And then last week, if you were with us in our combined whole church gatherings, those are fun times, aren't they? When we get together as a, as a whole church, both Bethlehem and Nazareth, and look forward into the days in the future, years, uh, a couple of years from now, when there's a third and a fourth and a fifth congregation, we can get together and really see what God is doing all across this valley. When we were together as a whole, uh, whole church, we talked about the unity of the church and being formed into one and the significance of that. Today what we want to talk about is our uniqueness as individual followers of Jesus and how that does not take away from the unity, but how we can't actually achieve true biblical unity unless we embrace our uniqueness and individuality as well. That is that we find unity through diversity not in diversity. That is our diversity and the mosaic picture that God is piecing together that brings the kind of unity that God longs for. So in your uniqueness, uh, one of the, the chief ways that God has made you is that he has given you what the Bible calls spiritual gifts. Many of you are familiar with this terminology. Some of you, this might be new to you. A spiritual gift is a special manifestation or a special talent or a special ability that God gives to his creation that is specifically to be used. They get used in all kinds of ways, but specifically to be used to strengthen the church towards maturity and enable it in God's mission in the world. 
special talent, special ability, special manifestation of the Spirit that God gives to strengthen the church in maturity to enable it to participate in the mission of God going forward. Of course, there are several passages in the New Testament that speak about spiritual gifts. Romans, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Peter, to name a few. But perhaps it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that really gets at the heart of this idea of individual uniqueness uh, that is equally important amongst the church that when it comes together really gets at the picture that God is longing for. So here's what I want to do. I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can go there. If you're still on the Bible app, that text should be right there for you after that song we just sang. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Then we're going to do a leap to 1 Peter chapter 4. You can turn there with me if you want to, or you can just just follow along and, and check that out later. Again, if you have the Bible app, it's right there for you. And then we're going to come all the way back to 1 Corinthians 12 to tie it all up in a bow, hopefully in a nice bow. So here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is what Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Now to give you a little bit of background, uh, and again, you may or may not be familiar with this, the church at Corinth was uh, in many ways a jacked up kind of Christian community. Things weren't exactly functioning there as they ought to. And one of the key problems that was going on in Corinth, there were many, but one of the key problems was that people were seeing themselves as superior to other people in the church, either because of their wealth or because of their giftedness. That is, that they saw particular gifts that God had given, particular talents or abilities or manifestations of the Spirit, as more significant, even they would say more spiritual than others. And Paul is writing this particular section of his letter to tell them that that is flat out wrong, that actually all of these things are important. So I'm going to read a couple of verses to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, verse 1, now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Uh, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What's he trying to say? He's trying to say that anything good that is done is a work of the Spirit, not of human effort. So he's already getting at this idea of equality. Verse 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit, that is the gift, is given for the common good. And Paul goes on to, to go through a list of gifts. This is not a, an end-all, be-all list. It's not to, meant to be exclusive. There uh, are other lists in the New Testament. In fact... I would wager to guess, I can't prove this, that there are gifts that aren't even listed in the New Testament, but be that as it may. I'm going to skip over this because our purpose today isn't to talk specifically about each gift. So go to verse 11. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He 
determines. So right from the outset, we learn three things that are critically important about spiritual gifts. Three things that are uh, so critically important that Paul puts them paramount in this whole discussion. The first is that spiritual gifts are given, delivered, distributed by the Holy Spirit. It says, as he determines or as he wills. So we talked earlier that God gives gifts to his people, but it's done according to the will of God. It happens as the Spirit desires. That means that you and I don't get to pick and choose the gifts we would like to have, the talents we would like to have, the abilities we would like to have, the role we would like to play. Nor can we conjure it up in our own effort. This is a gift of the Spirit. In the same way I think this points to, I can't, I can't say this conclusively, but I think it points to the reality that our giftedness is dynamic. That is, if the Spirit gives us gifts as He determines or wills, then that can also be speaking to length of time, right? Now certainly there are talents and abilities that seem to stay with people for the length of their lifetime, but again, all of this according to the Spirit. So the first thing Paul wants a church who is saying some people are more important than other people to know is that, hey, it's the Spirit who determines gifts, not people. The second thing he wants them to know is that our giftedness, our talents and our abilities, are meant for the common good, he says in verse 7 here of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That is that our giftedness, our talents, our abilities, are for the church, not for us. They are meant to be given away, much like the fruit of the Spirit. We've talked about this several times together as a church. The fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians is meant to be given away. Love, joy, peace, patience is not for your own nourishment. It's for the nourishment of the church and for the onlooking world. In the same way that a tree does not consume its own fruit, so too we don't consume our own fruit. And likewise, the gifts that God chooses in his sovereignty to bestow on us for a time or for a length of time are not for us. They're for the church. So there's a couple of natural implications to this, right? The first is that you can't own it to yourself. And so many people in the church find their identity and their value in their talents and their abilities, even though nothing could be more antithetical to the gospel. If your identity is not in your secular work, then your identity can also not be in your sacred work or your religious work. Your identity is in who you are, right? A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And then you serve out of that identity. Not to create something for yourself, but to be a blessing to the church and the world. Something else is significant uh, application of this that is really critical, I think, for us to talk about, particularly in this season of uh, quarantines and pandemics and online church. That is, if your giftedness is for the common good and not for yourself, then it seems to me that a logical conclusion is you are meant to participate in the livelihood of the church. 
And your absence from the church is actually in some ways um, keeping God's blessing from God's people by holding it to yourself. It has become easy, has it not, to wake up uh, and to turn on church on TV. And I'm grateful, I'm grateful for technology. I'm grateful for those possibilities. And those of you who are at home who couldn't be with us uh, because of physical limitations, because of COVID realities, or even because of travel, do not hear me speaking to you in this way uh, judgmentally. I'm not talking about that. I'm simply talking about the consumerism that sometimes seeps into the church that says, I only come to church to get. And now we've learned, oh, we can kind of get at home, can't we? We can watch TV. We can listen to worship music on songs. There's even better preachers than Adam out there. Surprise, surprise, right? And so we can consume from home. And what Paul is saying here in some ways is, yeah, but the church was never meant to be about consumption. It was meant to be about sharing yourself with the body of Christ for its strengthening, for its maturity, and to enable it in mission. And the truth is you can't do that on the sidelines. You can't do that from home. Now listen, we understand in quarantine and COVID realities, I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying you should move against your conscience and put yourself in a position you feel uncomfortable. Do not hear me saying that. What I'm saying is the long-term answer is not long-term consumption. It's personal, intentional investment into the livelihood of the church. Why? Because my maturity is dependent upon your giftedness. And your maturity is dependent upon each other's giftedness. This is what the church is supposed to look like. You have an incredibly important part to play in what's going on here. And your part isn't simply being a consumer. It's sharing your giftedness for the strengthening and maturity of the church and pushing us into the mission that God has given. I get it. It is so easy to not have to gather up your kids, to not have to try to make it somewhere on time, to not have to get out of your pajamas. (laughs) It's easy to fall into consumption, but to do that is to miss the beautiful picture of what the church is intended to be. The third thing I think I get from these verses in 1 Corinthians is that our giftedness is equally important. Our giftedness is equally important because it's for the common good. Now, I get this in part because of Paul's whole argument for Corinthians saying that some aren't better than others and from what will follow here in the rest of chapter 12 that we'll come back to later when Paul uses the analogy of a body, that we are the body and that we each have different roles to play. But here I just want to pause and say that those roles are equally important. Just like the Corinthians, it is easy to look at the giftedness of some people and say, well, what they do is significant, but what I do is insignificant. And what I would say to you is, nothing could be farther from the truth. And gifts used in isolation or apart from the full giftedness of the church means that God gets minutes and seconds to speak, where the picture is meant to be this constant interacting back and forth, gifts flowing all through the church that gives a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. Let me give you an analogy, and hopefully this is helpful. 
Have you ever been to a symphony? Right? Listen, not your fifth grade kids' concert. It's wonderful. They do a great job, and they deserve what they do. It's wonderful stuff. But I mean, have you ever been to an actual symphony, like professional, like Philadelphia or Boston or New York or one of those? Have you ever been there live and seen it? and seeing all of those different instruments playing their part that comes together in this beautiful performance of music that literally draws you into what's happening. It heightens your emotions at the right time. It causes you to think at the right time. It moves you to action at the other time. But think about the symphony for a minute. It's dependent upon three things, is it not? It needs music. It needs a conductor, and it needs instrumentalists. And I think in this, we have a beautiful picture of the church. The music that we have been given to play is, you get this church, and you don't know what I'm going to say? The music we've been given to play is the gospel. That shouldn't surprise anyone if you've been here for any length of time. That's the music. And Jesus is the composer. He's written the music. And Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit as a conductor to move us together. And then we are instrumentalists. Oboists, clarinetists, flutists, violins, violas, cello, timpani, trombones, everything imaginable. Each playing its part at just the right time under the direction of the Holy Spirit using the composition of Jesus that is the Gospel. And when it is played in its beauty, playing the music as it's written, following the conducting as the Spirit moves, it is an incredibly compelling piece of music. Of course, you know the problem is we sometimes like to go rogue as instrumentalists, don't we? <laughs> we like to play music that actually isn't there. And we like to follow the beat of our own drum rather than the baton of the conductor. But also imagine for a minute that symphony that you saw or heard or are dreaming of. And imagine all of a sudden if we start pulling whole sections out of it. Imagine for a minute if there's no more violins or if there's no more percussion or if there's no more woodwinds. And as wonderful as a trumpet player may be able to play his trumpet, it lacks the beauty of all things coming together. This is what the church is supposed to be. A beautiful symphony. I would have used a sports analogy, except I am currently in depression mode as a Philadelphia sports fan, so I've gone for symphonies. So hopefully that, that uh, lands with you. This is what we're called to do, and each one of you, including me, has an equal part to play. Here's one way that we screw up like the Corinthians did, right? You look at me and say, well, Adam's got the most important role to play. He preaches most of the Sundays. He's the leader. He's the one we pay to do things. And I think Paul would write back to you and say, Adam is important at Hope Alliance, but no more important than you. Your giftedness is equally as important 
In fact, if we removed Adam from Hope Alliance, it would be significant. But if we removed you from Hope Alliance, it would be just as significant. Do you see the important role that you have to play within the body of Christ? God has entrusted you with it. It's important. It's for the common good of our church. So how do you go about discovering your giftedness? Well, for a long time, the church said you should discover your giftedness by taking a written test. Uh, and I would wager to guess that is only minutely effective. Let me give you an example of how that's ineffective. Maybe you've done this. When you are in high school, did you have to take an aptitude test that told you what you should be when you grow up, right? Except you're already almost ready to go to college. So I took one of those, and the conclusions that it gave me were two things. The first thing, and the most... Uh, the, the job that, that most fit who I was was that I should be a taxi cab driver. Now, truth be told, I think I would actually enjoy being a taxi cab driver, though I'm not sure my parents were thrilled when I came home and said, hey, this is what my guidance counselor thinks I should do with my life. Again, if you're a taxi cab driver, it's a wonderful, wonderful profession, and uh, I, would, I would love to do it in some ways. The second thing it told me I should be is a rabbi. Now, it kind of got that kind of close, except I happen to not be Jewish. So this is what tests do, right? They don't, un they don't work with us in our particular realm and in our context. They, they try to do things in an objective way that are, aren't helpful. And the best thing I can say to you about how you, how you discover your gifts and talents is, one, I think you might already kind of know them because you kind of know the things you're sort of good at. But two, the way you discover them is you intentionally invest in the church. And they naturally come out. And one of the things the church does or should do is call out the gifts of each other and say, we need that. This is what I see in you. This is how we discover our giftedness. So, third question then, how? How do we use our gifts within the livelihood of the church? Here's where I want to flip to 1 Peter chapter 4 because I think it's really helpful. 1 Peter chapter 4, this is what Peter says. Now, if you remember, we've referenced 1 Peter an awful lot over the last number of weeks. He's writing to a scattered church who are going through really difficult times. And he wants, at this point in 1 Peter 4, he wants to give them some really critical exhortations that are significant for them. These are the things they should really focus on in this particular season of difficulty. He says in verse 7, the end of all things is near. What does he mean by that? He just means we're in the last days, right? So we've been in the last days for about 2,000 years. And that's true because the time after Christ is this age of waiting, of the in-between. We experience what Christ has done, but not yet in its fullness. And the world waits to hear and respond to the gospel. And, and Peter is saying the end is near. The times are difficult. It's, a, it's a, a, a challenging season. Therefore, be alert and be sober. Uh, be of sober mind so that you may pray. First thing he wants you to do is pray. Second thing he wants you to do, verse 8, above all, love each other deeply. Incredible. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Third thing he wants you to do, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why does he add that word after hospitality? Because you know it is so easy to grumble when you're offering hospitality. And then, 
The fourth thing that he says they should do, verse 10, each one of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Peter says it's challenging, it's difficult, we're scattered. The world seems against us. The times are challenging. What should you do? Love one another above all things. Pray for sure. Offer hospitality. Let us care for each other. And then use your gifts to serve one another. Do you see? It is significant that you embrace your role within the church. Use your gifts to serve one another. Now Peter is pretty careful here to take this idea of gift and wrap it deep within God's grace. In fact, the word gift is charismata. Uh, from it, we get the word charis, that is grace, right? It is right in there. This idea of gift and grace are in many ways the same word. And so when God gives you a gift, it is actually an act of his grace to give you this. In some ways, God is being generous to include you in the grand thing that he is doing in this world. Have you ever thought about it like that? Because this is how God always does things. He doesn't just snap his fingers and make things happen, right? But he uses his creation to care for his creation. He uses his creation to nurture his creation. Does his creation screw it up sometimes? Yeah, an awful lot. But he still intends to do things this way. And so by his grace... He calls you in to this big thing that He is doing. And therefore, if it is by God's grace that you are gifted, then the use of your gifts should be a demonstration of God's grace. Right? That as you give them away without expecting anything in return, That's why Paul writes in in Romans chapter 1 that he hopes to come to Rome and he hopes that his gift can in some way strengthen them. He wants to give away his gift for the good of the church. Or why in Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, he says God has given people to the church. He's given prophets and apostles and evangelists and teachers and and shepherds to the church. Why? So So the church can be built up ultimately towards maturity so they can give themselves away for the good of the church. This is not a consumerist vision for who we are. This is a together giving ourselves to each other so we can be strengthened into maturity and join God's missions. Do you notice the phrase that Peter used? He said God's grace in its various forms. Fascinating word that actually speaks of a mosaic. It is that all these different lights and colors, uh, the word could be translated many colors, coming together, that when they are together is when they most pronounce the image of God or most convey the scope of the grace of God. You are talented. You are gifted. You are unique. And your uniqueness demonstrates our Creator God. But it demonstrates it that much more when it is joined together into a grand mosaic, dare I say, a beautiful symphony called the local church. 
Peter goes on to say that when you live this way, you speak the very words of God and you act in the power of God. You are stewards of God's gift. God's gifts are not just given in grace, but they're given to be used in His power. The word steward is the word oikonomoi. And oikos in Greek speaks of households. Oikonomoi means like a household person or specifically a household manager. This is a person who is sort of overseeing the livelihood of the house. What's even more incredible is that this almost always was a former slave who was now a freed person, a freed man or a freed woman, who willingly had now come into service of their master. Think of the imagery of this. You and me, former slaves to sin, set free by Christ, and therefore believing our right response is to come into His service. Not isolated, but together. Many forms, many colors, demonstrating what God has done in setting us free. And Peter goes on to say, To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. That is, how do we use our gifts? We use our gifts as agents of God's grace. We use our gifts to demonstrate God's power. And we use our gifts to give God glory. Once again, saying that this is all about Him and what He has done for us. Not about us and what we can do for Him. So, let's flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and pick this up to attempt to tie a bow on this. Here's where Paul goes into his analogy of the body. Verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and you were all given the one Spirit to drink. So, even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Many people will take this passage of Scripture and say, this is all about unity. And they're partly right. But I think this passage of Scripture is actually all about diversity and the miraculous unity that can come through diversity only by the headship of Christ. And so Paul wants them to know their uniqueness. He wants them to value their uniqueness, 
but he wants them then to place their uniqueness in submission to the headship and the mission of Jesus. He says we're all parts of the body. Listen, a foot is always a foot and will never be anything other than a foot. A foot looks like a foot, a foot does what a foot does, and a foot usually smells like a foot smells. No matter where you place a foot within the body, it will still look and function like a foot looks and functions. Paul says you can't attach a foot to the side of your head and expect it to start hearing things. It doesn't work that way. It will still look like a foot and walk like a foot. But the beauty of the foot as functioning in the body is when it learns to move in symbiosis, working together with all other functions of the body for the good of the body under the direction of the head. So what are you? A foot? An ear? An eye? A knee? A hip? I don't know. You might know. And the church can help call that out in you. What I want you to know is whatever your role is, whatever your uniqueness and your talent is, we need it. We are dependent on it to be strengthened, to grow in maturity, and to engage in God's mission. And if you simply isolate yourself, you are not simply keeping yourself from consuming things, but you are withholding from us the good gifts God has given you to bless this church. You have an incredibly important role to play. Here's, I think, what Paul wanted for the church at Corinth, and I think what he wants for our church and for the church in general. He wants Christians who have discovered and who value their uniqueness. Their giftedness, their talents, their abilities, their passions, their desires, their goals, who know and who value them, who don't try to, to do away with it or, or kind of in, in false humility push it down, but who know and who value them. But then who also, because they have understood that Christ is the head, willingly submit themselves, gifts, uniqueness, and all, for the glory and the mission of Jesus in this world. That it doesn't become about you on display and you being valued, but rather you being given away in grace for the forward move of the church. Here's the deal. We can sometimes value unity so much that we push away the uniqueness and the giftedness that God has given to people. And that is a grave mistake. But we can also value our uniqueness so much that we fail to understand that Jesus has composed a grand symphony and that the Spirit is the rightful conductor and that we have a chair to sit in and an instrument to play, a significant part. 
in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are meek. In our world, meekness is not something that is typically valued. Those people look weak, right? We don't understand what biblical meekness is. Biblical meekness actually speaks of a strong and stubborn wild horse who has been tamed by its owner. And this, I think, is what Paul's talking about here. You have so much to offer. And Jesus wants you to live into that in submission to the divine story that he is writing in this place for his glory. So the question is, if you are part of a chosen people, if you are part of a royal priesthood, if you are part of a holy nation, if you in fact are part of God's special possession, and if Jesus is the rightful head, and if unity is something to be valued, then what is your part? What is your role? And will you invest in the livelihood of the church to not only discover your uniqueness and your giftedness, but to in grace give it away for the strengthening in maturity of those around you. This is the rightful act of worship that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. A right response to the gospel. And I invite you, oboists, clarinetists, flutists, flautists, I don't know how you say that, violins, percussion, pianists, brass, stage crew, to take up your part and to join with me in living into this reality here locally as part of Hope Alliance Bethlehem of what it means to be the people of God. Can you pray with me?